There are individuals, unfortunately, who um, don't know what to pray when they're called upon to pray. And uh, so they go back to something they learned in their childhood. And I'm thinking, my goodness, there's one prayer that everybody ought to know and remember, no matter how bad your memory is. Even if you got hit with, in the head with a brick, the Lord's Prayer. And uh, ironically enough, when you think about it, when, when Jesus taught his disciples this beautiful prayer, it was taught at, well, he, was, he taught it as a, a rabbi, a Jew. The last time I spoke was on Father's Day, and I had the task of speaking about, or being placed to speak in between a series that wasn't completed. And, and here I am again being put kind of in between two sermon series, one that just came to an end and one that's about to begin. And I'm thinking, I'm on a rock and a hard place again, but by God's grace, we're going to hit three birds with one stone today, believe it or not. Because part of the Lord's Prayer really does address our preoccupation with our needs, which we deal with financially, but then also uh, part of the Lord's Prayer deals with the topic of temptation, which will be addressed uh, when Pastor Shannon gets back. And probably more importantly, uh, the Lord's Prayer really addresses what we all need today. And so I'm going to invite you to stand as we pray this together. Would you stand with me? Our Father in heaven, your name be honored as holy. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And do not bring us into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. Amen. You may be seated. Every person at some point, learns and memorizes the Lord's Prayer, and rightfully so, because it is the disciples' prayer. It is every follower of Christ's prayer. The problem with the Lord's Prayer is that I think the simplicity of it eludes us, and that what Jesus gave us to pray the model that he left for us, I think sometimes uh, gets lost in its simplicity in terms of what Jesus wanted us to remember and to pray about. Now, it comes right from the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 6, where Jesus talks about three spiritual practices, giving, praying, and fasting. But as he begins his talk about prayer, he zeroes, in, he zeroes in right away on the way prayer in that day has been abused. And he says there are actually individuals who pray in such a way is that they want to be seen. It's all about the visual. And then he goes on to say there are individuals who pray in such a way as they really want to make sure that they're heard. It's all about verbosity and vocabulary. And Jesus essentially says, this is insincere prayer. He says, when 
you pray, go into your private room, shut your door, and pray to your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. Don't be like them because your Father knows the things you need before you ask Him. And so Jesus cuts through the chase. He says, if anything, genuine prayer is done in the secret. It's sincere and it's simple. But here's one thing I just want to bring to your attention before we actually launch into this message. And it goes back to verse 8, the verse that immediately precedes the Lord's Prayer. Jesus says, Do not be like him because your Father knows the things you need before you ask him. We look at this and we come to the conclusion very quickly that what a relief. Before I even bring my request to God, he knows what I need. But I don't know if you ever considered the fact that not only does he know what we need before we ask him, he also knows what we should really be praying about. Think about it. Jesus knows what we need before we even ask him, which also suggests that when we go to pray, that he also knows what we should actually be praying about. Now, I don't know about you, but I have often found myself in situations where I'm praying and praying and praying and beating around the bush and going around the neighborhood and praying, only to realize that, am I really praying about what I should be praying about? And that is the simple secret, the mystery, if you will, that is deeply embedded in what we refer to as the Lord's Prayer. It's as if Jesus is saying to us, I know what you need, but I also know what you need to be praying about. So here it is. As a matter of fact, if you go to Luke chapter 11, where you find the, the, the second version of the Lord's Prayer in a different context, the disciples are watching Jesus pray, and, and they come up to them and say, can you, can you teach us how to do what you do like when you, when you talk to God? He says, sure. So he takes them through the Lord's Prayer. The point is, is that Jesus is giving them a model that should really shape the way they pray. Not only so, but 2,000 years later, this model is not just, well, you know, if you've got nothing better to do, you get put on the spot at somebody's supper, and you're asked to pray, well, uh, oh, the Lord's Prayer, I can do that. It's the prayer that should lead all prayer. It's the prayer that should instruct all prayer. It's, it is the prayer to pray. So we're going to unpack it a little bit this morning. Now, I, I had to laugh because when I knew we were going to be addressing the Lord's Prayer, I thought to myself, I actually did this on a Wednesday night Bible study with a number of folks. Some of them are actually here. And believe it or not, we took three months to talk about the Lord's Prayer. Now, you're probably thinking, as I can see the wheels turning your head, 
if it took you three months to do the Lord's Prayer and you only have like 30 minutes, oh my goodness, are we in for a ride. <laughs> no, you don't have to t uh, fasten your seatbelts, but there is a lot in this prayer and I want to, um, I, I kind of just want to open up the treasure box of what it is to you. And I trust and pray that through this, you'll understand what God has always wanted us to take to heart with regards to prayer. First of all, Jesus says, when you go to pray, pray this way. Our Father in heaven. Oh, I'm not even sure if you can see that. Oh, okay, you can see that. Right. What are we praying for? We are praying that his paternal heart for all of us is recognized. Paternal, in other words, paternity from the Greek word pater, meaning fatherly. Jesus is quick to, to remind us that it's not just my father or the father of Jesus that I'm praying to. It's our father. I don't know if you remember, but in the story of the resurrection, what an interesting thing he says to Mary Magdalene. He says to her, do not touch me because I have not yet ascended to my God and my Father, your God and your Father. In that simple little conversation, he's essentially saying to Mary, listen, there are not two different levels of addressing God and God our Father. He's our God and our Father. And a lot of times when we approach the Lord's Prayer, we, we, we approach it as single individuals, meaning it's just about me praying this prayer. And this subtle shift reminds us that when we pray this, we pray this representatively as part of a greater community. And so, yes, it's prayed in church, it's prayed in small groups, it's prayed on behalf of our families, but it's always prayed with the sense that God is our Father, not just my Father. And that shapes the way we pray. You see, He's the one who's given us spiritual birth. He's the one who has brought us into His family. He's the one who has made us sons and daughters, brothers and sisters. And so that's the plane that we stand on. And so right Right from the get-go, Jesus is moving us away from the praying about me to the praying as we. Our Father. Our Father. Ironically, in the Old Testament, God was seldomly referred to and described as Father, except only in the, in the sense of identity. In other words, if God is father, then Israel is his son. But here, Jesus goes beyond identity to intimacy. He's saying, when you say, our father, you're using the most intimate, personal, close language. That's how you start off talking to God. Now, I know some of us, depending on our upbringing, depending on how we have been taught to pray may struggle with that, may feel that the only way we approach God is with some deep theological 
reverential, uh, awe-inspiring use of language. Dear, mighty, uh, omnipotent God. Oh, sweet Lord of hosts, right? And he's saying, I'm your father. Come to me as my child. Address me as father. Jesus wants us to understand that right from the get-go, when we come to God in prayer, we come as children to our Father. Interesting, he says, our Father in heaven. Now, I'm spending a little bit more time on this because the way this prayer starts off shapes the way we pray the rest of it. And so if we miss it at the start, we miss the rest. Our Father in heaven, normally when we think of heaven... We think of destination. We think of afterlife. We think of reward. Would it shock you if I told you that in those days, in the days of Jesus, that the concept of an afterlife, the concept of being with God forever in what we now call heaven was almost foreign to their thinking? That idea was not even developed yet Theologically, if you want to put in those terms. Your most pious Orthodox Jew understood this much. That in the end, God would make all things right. He would vindicate his people. And there would be a reward for living for him. That is about the extent to which they understood. So, Mark, what are you saying? Well, what I'm saying is that when Jesus says pray this way, Our Father in heaven... We're not just to think about destination one day, but the domain of God. Not the rewards for later on down the road, but but the realm in which God exists. Not just the afterlife, but, but the abode of God. In other words, our Father in heaven, the one who is occupying every inch, millimeter, of, of space in time and eternity, even down to the very atmosphere, the air that I breathe. Father, you are everywhere. You're not just some distant deity far up in the clouds, far removed from the realities that I'm facing in my everyday life. God, you are right here. Doesn't that change the way we pray? Doesn't that change from our Father who's in another galaxy waiting for us in the afterlife to our Father who, who's so part of the creation that He's watching over it, He's caring for it, He's caring about our circumstances, He's caring about where we are, where we live? May your name be honored as holy. We're praying that His, his personhood be revered. In other words, who God is, the part of God that we relate to, He's God, but as God, He's also a person in the sense that He feels, He thinks, He loves, He communicates, He understands, He cares. But who He is, is not just a person, He's God. The name always indicated God's personal identity. And it was, God's identity was always revealed by his deeds, the things that he did, 
and how you reveal themselves. But name means much more than a designation. In the Old Testament, names were always used um, to talk about the qualities and actions of a person. Today, when we use a name, to, to, and quite often we use names of, of each other that are, you know, sometimes they're endearing, sometimes they're actually insulting, right? We, we, we live in a society where names are used as, a, as, as an ongoing put-down. But Jesus is saying something entirely different. He's saying, may your name be revered. The old King James says, hallowed be thy name. We don't use that language anymore. But one thing is for certain, as you look at this verse, it's got nothing to do with what we do. It's got to do with what God is doing about his person. Another way of saying it is, we are asking God to do what he needs to do to bring everybody into a proper response to his holiness, to what God reveals about himself. You see, we are a reflection upon God and sometimes a reflection of God by the way we live. And it's easy for people to get the wrong impression about who God is when they look at our, our lives. I mean, I think all of us have all been in places and times where we... we we look at our life and we go, boy, I hope nobody's looking at me because they're going to get the wrong impression about who God is. And Jesus is saying, when you pray to your Father who's present, pray this too. Pray that who He reveals Himself to be, His name, His qualities, will be always regarded with reverence, will always be esteemed and respected I love the, the analogy of us rescuing individuals who are, who are in such dire, incomprehensible circumstances, almost on the point of death. Somebody comes in and rescues an abandoned orphan, a child, and takes them out of the mess that they are in, and clothes them and feeds them, and gives them shelter and safety, and, and gives them what they need to thrive and to grow and to have a new start, and possibly gives them an education. And what, what happens is, is that the child now becomes representative of the goodness of the person who has come to them. This is all kind of captured in this simple little phrase, may your name be, be honored, may your name be revered. Because when God came into our lives, He came to us when we were broken, when we were lost, when we were in darkness, when we were separated from Him, and He saved us. He took us out of the slum of this world and gave us a new identity, a new beginning, a new start, and made something of our lives, and so that we are now a reflection upon Him. That is the way it's supposed to be in a best-case scenario. So we are praying that that remains that way. God, may my life continue to be representative of all that you are. You're my Father. Your kingdom come, 
we pray that the priority of his rule is received. If there was anything that was first and foremost on the lips of Jesus when he communicated, when he taught, when he preached, was the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is God's rightful and righteous rule and reign in and through the lives of his people and throughout the realm or the domain of his existence. Jesus made visible the reality of God's kingdom by loving and faithfully obeying his Father's will, with the outcome of God's power being made viable through his actions, behaviors, his deeds, his experiences. In other words, when Jesus spoke about the kingdom of God, he wasn't just thinking the great domain of God, but what would that domain look like if all his loyal subjects here on earth lovingly obeyed him? What would that look like? And so Jesus says, make that part of what you pray. Make sure that when you pray that, because every day you have the wonderful opportunity of giving visibility to the invisible God, his invisible rule and reign here on earth. We, we use the phrase, you know, that person marches to the beat of a different drummer. Meaning that person's steps, actions, choices, decisions, behaviors are governed by something more than just the same old of the go with the flow. They're being influenced by something greater than them. The church gives visibility to the kingdom of God whenever we listen to God and obey Him and simply live out the life that He's calling us to live as loyal subjects of His kingdom. It starts with our lives. It continues in our families. It continues in our churches. But ultimately... We pray that Christ's kingdom will come right to when Christ returns. I don't know about you, but when you look at the overwhelming nature of the world, the sin, the heartache, the brokenness that happens, there are times where I say to myself, God, how much more? You, you get scared or you get depressed and you struggle and you say, God, what's next? When's the next high school shooting going to happen? When's the next terrorist attack going to unfold? I'm just being reminded more and more and more again. Instead of kind of crying out in despair or in anger or in frustration, I can do what Jesus is asking me right here. That when something of this nature happens, I say, Lord, may your kingdom come. In the parts of this world that is in full rebellion and rejection of your leadership and your influence, may your kingdom come. Wherever there are believers scattered through the nations that don't believe in you, may their obedience and the outcomes of their obedience establish these beautiful examples of the kingship of God amongst his people. We keep praying that until the king returns and establishes his kingdom. We don't know when that will be, but we know it's a lot sooner than it was yesterday, that's for sure. May your kingdom come, may your will be done. We pray that his purposes are fully realized. The truth is, is that what we, or what God ultimately wants for us is is beneficial 
It's good. It's pleasing and perfect according to Romans 12. It's done in us. It's done with us. It's done through us. But here's the deal. It's hard to open up your heart to the will of God if you don't want Him to be the king of your life. If, if the analogy of the king doesn't sit with you, then it's hard for me to want to live the life Christ wants me to live if I'm not allowing him to be the leader of my life. So when I pray, may your kingdom come, may your will be done, obeying God in the fine details of everyday life is a lot easier when I'm already predisposed or disposed. I'm already, my heart's already open to the fact that he has every right to be the first primary voice in my life in all my decisions. He doesn't have to force his way in. He doesn't have to send an army to break down my door and say, hey, I am the king. Why? Well, we go back to the start. Our father. Our Father, the one who lovingly protects and provides and cares for us, who has every part of our lives in his full view, who who longs to bless us and favor us, if only we would open up the door to his influence and yield our lives to him, how much more would his will be accomplished in our lives? Remember the old saying, some of you will, that he who is convinced against his will is of the same opinion still, right? But when our, heart, when, our, when, our, when our heart is like the doors of a house opened with, with gracious welcome, with gracious invitation, then doing what God wants us to do is so much easier. Now, we get to the part of the prayer where everything shifts. I don't know if you've picked up on it before. Uh, I know it was, it was amazing when it finally dawned on me, but in the first part of the prayer, we are praying, may your name be revered. May your kingdom come. May your will be done. Everything we have prayed so far in the Lord's Prayer begins with Him. Now, this is not because God's going to throw a tantrum if, if we pray and we don't start off with, with our focus on Him. But the point is, is that when we do pray with Him as our immediate focus, it changes the way we pray. It puts what we pray into perspective. You see, it, it kind of gives us the bigger picture of how we ought to pray. When I begin praying as I often do in the morning, and I focus specifically on who God is, that He is my Father, then right away from from the get-go, there's something that happens inside of me that gets my eyes off of me and onto Him. Now, I can't make that happen, but the Holy Spirit knows what to do with that. As I open up my heart to Him, the Holy Spirit begins to take my focus and move it towards God, and all of a sudden, starts, something starts changing in me. I, I become confident. I become comfortable in His presence. Like, I'm, I'm praying, and I'm realizing that I'm not 
speaking to the heavens way out there. I'm not talking to the wall. But I'm actually in the presence of the one who's invited me to be there with him. The one who knows what I need before I ask. The one who knows how I ought to pray before I pray. That helps shape the way we pray. Now, give us today our daily bread. We pray for his provision. When we get to this part of the prayer, it's all about us. <laughs> no, that kind of sounds cheesy, doesn't it? But it is, give us our daily bread. Forgive us our sins. Lead us not into temptation. Deliver us from evil. The point is, is that we can only pray that with confidence and pray that with a sense of a certainty when it's been established in our hearts that He is our, our loving Father, that He occupies every space that we can conceive of, and that He wants to rule and reign in our midst and make His will known through our lives because His will is good. Our daily bread, the word is only found twice in the entire New Testament and in both versions of the, uh, of the, uh, the Lord's Prayer. But it's a, it's a very interesting word because what it captures is not so much give me what I need from the morning to the night, right? This whole time period that I call the day. Everything in there, just, just give it to me, God. The emphasis is on just exactly what I need for today. Now, you can understand why when we start praying this way, this really starts challenging the way we live. You see, in, in, in the Hebrew mindset, in the Jewish mindset, which we are so foreign to, but this was the mindset that shaped the way they prayed, and this is the mindset that shaped the way Jesus prayed. You have to understand, the day did not begin first thing in the morning. The day began in the latter part of the day, and it went to the morning. Just go back and read Genesis chapter 1. So it really kind of throws you for, the loop, for a loop when you think, what exactly are we praying for? Do we, do we pray this in the morning? Well, here's the beautiful thing. If we follow the Genesis rhythm, then some point in the latter part of the day, we are just praying for what we absolutely need for the coming day. So that when we wake up in the morning, we're not in a state of panic. We're not in a state of worry about, oh, are my needs going to be met today? Because we've already prayed about it. And as we go into the day, our Heavenly Father has already cared for exactly what we need for that day. Isn't that wonderful? Why am I saying this? Because I'm sure a lot of us wish that we could be early risers and, and just get up at 5 or 6 in the morning. And, well, maybe, hang on, you're probably, if yeah, not me. <laughs> But you know, the point is, is that there's something about the morning of, of being able to be alone with God and to kind of put your day into focus. The truth is, for some of us who have children and large families and early schedules, 
It seems like the moment the clock rings, we are running by the seat of our pants to get our day going. And sometimes you just kind of wonder, God, are you even part of this day? What the Lord's Prayer is suggesting, it's not making restrictive or binding, but that when I pray, as I go into this day, as I'm praying, oh God, Father, grant me what I need for this coming day. Sure, it'll be there, but you know what? I've already got a head start on tomorrow. I hope that means something to you because that is really powerful. I want to share a little story with you to illustrate this. Many, many years ago, well, many years ago, I guess it really wasn't that long. It was four years ago. I'm getting old. That's kind of scary when you say many, many years ago. Dad, you were just talking about four years ago. When my, um, Karen and I were serving at a church and that came to an end and the church graciously extended the health care benefits to us for a four-month severance period, and I remember the day we were sitting down in the table and we looked at each other and we looked at each other and we said, it all ends today, right? The benefits ends today, so we better not get sick. And we were joking about it and it's like, oh, I got a toothache, oh, I got a migraine. And, but anyhow, the point was is that there was something about the finality of not having any coverage setting in. And we kind of looked at each other and we thought, it's kind of scary, eh? Like when you kind of get accustomed to not so much relying on a health care or a health benefits package, but when it's there, how much a blessing it is, and then it's gone. And we looked at each other and we said, thought, what are we going to do? Because at that point, I was on a medication that cost $4,500 to take every six weeks. So do the math for the coming year. And I just looked at each other and said, we don't know what we're going to do. Well, what can we do? All we can do is pray. Within the conversation, I hear a knock on the door. And it was a person that I saw about a year earlier. I actually did a funeral for her daughter who painfully lost to cancer at such a young age. And she said, Pastor Mark, I heard you're gone. Got something for you. Don't have time to talk. Here you go. God bless you. <laughs> okay. So I grabbed the envelope and I thought, well, you know, isn't this kind? You know, somebody's probably given us, you know, a few bucks to buy some groceries or maybe just a God's with you card, you know, go and be at peace. Try not to worry. And I opened it up and had several hundreds of dollars in it. And in that moment, it's not that I heard the voice of God, but here's the thought that was so crystal clear in my mind. Mark, cooperators insurance is not your benefits provider. I am your health care provider. You, you understand what I'm saying? Give us this day our daily bread. What I need in this coming day, provide for, and God does. But we are such a future or forward future preoccupied people and when Jesus says, don't worry about tomorrow because tomorrow will worry about itself, each day has enough trouble of its own, we think, you, you can't be serious. I mean, we live in a culture that has uh, created a way of life that keeps us in constant suspense about tomorrow. We're mildly anxious about tomorrow. 
And yet God says, I will take care of your needs today. And I've got to be honest with you folks, that is really, really hard for us. Because I'm sure many of you are thinking, what about my retirement? What, what about my health? I'm, I'm struggling now. What about five, ten years down the road? Who's going to care for me when my, my children kind of have their own lives? Their own? Who's, who's going to be there for me? And, and it, it, these are legitimate needs. And when you wake up some morning, you're not thinking about our Father in heaven your kingdom come, your will be done. You're thinking, what about my needs? What about today? How am I going to, I've been unemployed for three months. How, how am I going to get through? And we back up and we remind ourselves once again. Our Father, the Father of me, the Father of you, brother and sister, He's caring for me, He's caring for you. He might even use you to care for me. He might use me to care for you. Our Father. Forgive us our debts, and i got to hurry because uh, we are running out of time. Forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. Very interestingly that Jesus is mixing metaphors. He's mixing the metaphor of forgiveness, which we understand, but he's also introducing the metaphor of debt. Let me tell you a funny story. This will kind of make you smile because you don't look like you're smiling. I'm sorry. But this, this happened long ago before I came to Jesus, okay? This happened in my old life. Can I emphasize that again? This is not what happened recently. This is what happened long time ago before I surrendered my life to Jesus. I just want to make sure that doesn't get edited out in the tape, Michael. But I remember I used to play in a bar band, and one thing that we did in the bar bands, we had a tab. So if you don't know what a tab is, oh boy, I don't know how much in detail I want to go. But you know, like you can purchase something when you are in the bar and just say to the waiter, put it on my tab. And when you want to impress somebody, you bought something for them and yourself, and you turned to the waiter and said, put it on my tab. But then at the end of the month, the waiter and the owner of the club said, it's tab paying time. And you go, I bought that? I bought that? I bought that for that and that? I'm too cheap. There's no way I would have bought this person that and that person that. I'm way too cheap for that. You bought it. No, I didn't. Yes, you did. You are in debt to the bar. You're not laughing, but the point is, we understand the weight of obligation when we sin. Other people feel the weight of obligation when they sin against us. But our weight of obligation, our sense of debt, our sense of we owe God something can be crushing. And there are individuals who never seem to be able to walk in the freedom of forgiveness because the, the idea of the weight of what they owe God through sinning continuously never seems to leave them. And Jesus says, one thing you should make that should make its way into your prayer life on a daily basis is a simple thing. 
You are a forgiven people, but pray about forgiveness. Pray so that you be reminded that your forgiveness has been established through the cross. It has been paid in full. And it's, the emphasis here is not so much on every time I pray, I've got to make sure I have checked off every misdeed of my day. It's, it's Jesus saying, hey, listen, when you remember that you have been pardoned and forgiven, that the weight of obligation that you somehow owe God something, that's been taken care of. Now turn around and look at your relationships. Do the people around you feel the same freedom? And that's why he's saying, forgive others as you've been forgiven. We live forgiveness, but if we don't forgive others and, and, and allow them to feel the freedom of being forgiven, then we're in trouble. The point is this. Many of us, many of us struggle with forgiveness because we can't seem to join the idea of forgiving and forgetting. Can, can I just put you at rest? You cannot forget. Okay? Can you be free when I say that? You cannot forget what was done to you. God cannot remove from His conscience memory the sins we have committed. So forgiving is not forgetting. Forgiving is saying, no matter what you have done against me, I will never take the past and you bring it into the future and allow that to influence the way I treat you, deal with you, love you, believe in you. We put such incredible burdens of obligation and and. I can't even think of the, the proper word now on individuals when we talk, oh, you, know, you, you should have gotten over this by now. You should have forgotten about this. Well, tell that to an abuse victim. Tell that to a person whose husband ran off on them. Tell that to the children who don't know where their mom is. Well, that's cruelty because they cannot forget but what they can do is by the grace of God is to choose in the present moment not to hold the past and dig it up and use it against the person. Because every time we are dealing with individuals who have sinned against us, that's what we do. We allow the past to come knocking on our door and come back into our life and it affects the way we think, we feel, and we start treating the individual based on offense that has happened so long ago. And forgiveness is saying, I release you from ever having to be influenced by what you've done to me long ago. You're no longer influenced by that because I'm not going to treat you based upon what you've done for me. Folks, we, we, we need to recover our theology of forgiveness. No wonder we have trouble forgiving. But God's saying, listen, I have forgiven you everything. 
I never remember it and bring it to my conscience memory when you pray to me and when you seek me. But a lot of times we're praying as if, well, you know what I did. Oh, you remember, you remember this is the 78th time. And the truth is, is that yes, God could, if he wanted to go back and remember every incident, but he chooses not to. Anyhow, I'll leave that there. I, I don't know why I had to get on that, but that, that's so important for some of us. Okay, let's close this. Do not bring us into temptation, but deliver us from evil. I try to do a two for one. This is the hardest part of the Lord's Prayer to wrestle with because you know what? God does bring us into temptation. I thought that would get your eyes, your eyes, get your attention. The Holy Spirit drove Jesus into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. No temptation has seized you except what is common to man, but God is faithful who will provide a way of escape in the temptation. Here's here's what what this is. Remember when Jesus is praying in the Garden of Gethsemane and he's saying, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, your will be done, not mine. This is what he's praying. He said, "Don't, don't lead me into temptation. But may your will be done. Folks, in the New Testament, temptation is characterized by two words. Two meanings. But the word that is used here is the most predominant word, parasmos. And it simply means this. It could be mean, it can be a testing or a tempting a way of validating a person's faith or a way of getting to violate their faith. It all depends on how the person responds in the temptation. God wants us to grow, and so He brings us into seasons of testing and trial, not to break us, but to build us. It's clear, the Scripture says, when anybody's tempted, they can't blame God for it because God doesn't tempt anybody. What? He doesn't tempt them with evil. But He will bring them into a time of testing to help them grow. How else do we grow? Again, our theology of temptation needs to be recovered and rescued from the mud. The point is, we have one who has gone through Every temptation in its fullness, in its severity, and yet has not sinned. And He is the one that we go to when we pray. Please do not allow me to be led into temptation. But here's the beautiful corresponding part. Deliver us from the evil one. In other words... When we go through things and for whatever reason we slip and we fall and we trip up and we are caught, then we pray for deliverance. You see, deliverance in the Old Testament context always spoke of somebody who was caught in a trap that they couldn't get out of and they were completely reliant and dependent upon the person who would come and rescue them. When you see the word deliverance, you should think 
rescue, a rescue operation. And so here's God saying, or telling us, hey, listen, pray that you not be led into the kind of temptations that will break you, but in the event that you find yourself in over your head, it's a sink or swim situation, you can pray for deliverance and rescue, and God will rescue you. Karen and I, and some of you may even know this man, his name is Kevin Garrett, a faithful missionary to North Korea, was arrested by the Chinese some three, three and a half years ago, and was wrongfully imprisoned for nearly two years. And we interceded and prayed and prayed and prayed, and finally the Trudeau government intervened where the Harper government couldn't, and it's not that they didn't try, but eventually got Kevin's release. You see, we, we struggle with that. We say, well, bless God, there must have been sin in his life, otherwise he would have not been in prison. Well, that's so ridiculous and stupid. How could we think that way? We are in a real war, in case we haven't noticed. We have a real enemy. This is a dark time in human history. And you know what, folks? While on some fronts it may look like it's going to get better and better every day, it is going to get darker and darker before Jesus comes back. We are in a real war, and, and, and the, the days of just parking our spirituality or our prayer life away in, in such a way as to not take into account the darkness and the spiritual warfare are in, those days are over. We cannot afford ourselves to believe that we're just going to hop, skip, and doodle our way to heaven unscathed. It didn't happen in Russia. It didn't happen in China. Why do we think it didn't happen in Europe? Why do you think it's not going to happen in North America? Our theology of escapism, that somehow God's just going to kind of rescue us before it all hits the fan, we need to rethink that. Sorry to be the bringer of bad news on a Sunday morning. But in our times of testing, even when it gets severe, our God will rescue us. And Scripture says that over and over and over in the New Testament. Our God is a rescuing God. Well, I've gone over my time. So let me close with this. I love this illustration of the iceberg because when you think about it, uh, the, the uh, oh, where's your little button? No, no, I didn't know. No, yeah, thank you, Michael. Michael is our savior. Um, when we pray the Lord's Prayer, what we see in the black and white is what you see up there. We pray things like, Our Father in heaven. But the truth is that every statement of Jesus in that prayer has what you don't see. Each one of those statements is loaded. That the moment you start praying it and taking it to heart, you realize just how impacting and far-reaching this prayer is. I use this as an example. In the early days, I would pray, Our Father, right? Our Father. But, but then the further I went on, it was moving away from me praying to we praying. And the further that went on, the deeper it went, praying about 
the fatherly qualities of God that make him trustworthy. And then the further that went on, praying about the relationships that we as his children need to have, not only with him, but with each other, is that the more you pray the Lord's Prayer, the deeper it goes and goes and goes. And then you realize, you know what? When Jesus asked me to pray this, he was asking me to pray something that would touch every part of my life. It's not just a token Sunday school prayer. The Lord's Prayer literally touches every part of your existence as a believer in this world. But you will only discover that as you pray it. Would you bow your heads, please? I'm going to invite the worship team just to come as we close out this morning's service. Jesus, I don't know if there was a twinkle in your eye when you looked at the disciples and gave them this beautiful model of how to pray. But this much I know. You made it so simple that even a child could remember it. You made it so specific that each part of the prayer can be recalled in the drop of the hat's notice. And yet you made it so sufficient that it covers every part of our life. Now there's a part of us, Abba, who that says, well, yeah, but it, it, it doesn't deal with this and it doesn't deal with that and it doesn't deal with this and it doesn't deal with that. Would you forgive us for allowing this prayer to be unprayed and unproven to address every part of our lives? You made this prayer so simple that a child could remember it. So would you please help us to revisit it again, to take it to heart and to allow it to shape the way we pray? Help us to pray it appropriately with you as our first focus so that shapes the way we pray about our own needs. If I'm praying that your will be done, what if your will suggests that maybe there's a season I need to go through that I don't particularly want? But when I go through it, as difficult or maybe as inconvenient as it is, I find myself coming out of it a better person, a better father, a better husband, a better man, a better woman, a better leader, a better caregiver. So Abba, as we take on the challenge of praying this as if for the first time, would you shape it and shape us as we pray it that our lives would indeed never be the same. And as we are changed by praying this beautiful prayer, thank you for leaving this for us. Where would we be without it?